Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. You have tuned into the Rebel News live stream on this, a Tuesday, May the 17th, 2022. I'm David Menzies, and my co-host, well, let me tell you a little bit about my co-host. You know, today is National Cherry Cobbler Day, and my friend would take a, a cherry cobbler over Doug Ford's cherry cheesecake any day of the year. She is the she-devil with a slingshot. She is the Khaleesi of Coburg. She is Tamara Ugolini. How you doing there, Tamara? Well, David, I am just great after that fantastic introduction. For a moment there, I thought you were going to conflate me with Sheila. She's she's <laughs> traditionally the she-devil in your introduction references. So uh, I'm humbled by this context you provided this morning, or this afternoon, rather. Thank you, David. Well, of course, Sheila is the she-devil with a sword. I said slingshot for you because I figured with all your kids, you must have ample access to slingshots. And uh, and don't feel bad. Uh, my namesake, David, he took down the big guy, the prohibitive favorite, with a, a sling. And uh, there you go. Nothing to be ashamed of that you don't have a, a sword like Sheila does. <laughs> That's right, David. You're doing God's work out here in, in the journalistic <laughs> field, especially last night. So I think before we get into where we're going with our live stream topics, we have to do a formal introduction. And I'm rusty on this topic. So, David, do you want to take that away? Oh, well, uh, thank you for putting me on the spot because this is usually <laughs> Sheila's job. Basically, yes. in a nutshell, folks, um, we are, of course, uh, live streaming on YouTube amongst other platforms. But if we get into dangerous territory on YouTube, well, uh, what can I say? The censorious thugs of Silicon Valley, they don't like talk about um, contrarian views to the coronavirus of which Tamara Ugolini has many. Uh, they don't like um, talk about election fraud in the U.S. in 2020. Oh, election fraud discussions of 2016. That's okay. <laughs> Fill your boots. Um, so if we're getting into treacherous waters, we have to bail. But you can see us on Super U, Odyssey. Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting a few. Rumble. Uh, Rumble. Rumble, thank you, you so much. Uh, Getter, I believe. And um, there are ways in which you can do, I think we call them a super chat or a library. Uh, yes. You can uh, weigh in with a comment if you make a small financial donation. That's how we keep the lights on. We're not the CBC. We, we don't, you know, or, or for that matter, TV Ontario. We don't take a direct deposit <laughs> or a direct withdrawal, I should say, from your bank account every two weeks and force you to uh, pay for our uh, broadcast facility. So we really do appreciate your, your financial support that way. And uh, I think that, in a nutshell, very abbreviated, is uh, is it. Now, speaking of TV Ontario, uh, mm -hmm. Tamara, you and ace uh, cameraman Lincoln J were down at the TV Ontario studio. Uh, first of all, uh, before we get into it, what everyone, you know, certain politicians, uh, namely Pierre Polyev, Leslin Lewis on the federal level, of course, get amazing standing ovations when they talk about defunding the CBC. Why yeah. does TV Ontario, um, you know, slip by anyone's attention? Why does a government have its own ministry of propaganda, a TV studio? And my theory, Tamara, is that so few people 
tune into TV Ontario, even though it's been around for decades, that um, it's simply an afterthought. But, you know, uh, do you have any thoughts on why we have a provincially funded TV network? You know, I had actually forgotten about TV Ontario, so I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that you pointed that out. And, and it got me thinking, too, yeah, why does this still exist? What good is it bringing the Canadian public? What kind of content do they even come out with? Um, and so I did a little, I, I was reading up on their website yesterday and the day prior before the debate. So for anyone who doesn't know this, uh, last night, the final uh, Ontario leaders debates took place at, like we're saying, TVO Ontario at their headquarters in Toronto. Um, and they're actually partly they're they're like an arm of the ministry of education the ontario ministry of education and so that i guess at this point is unsurprising that the government is just funding all of these it's like a spider web and you have to get back to who the core builder of these things is and it's of course the government um but yeah it was definitely really interesting to be there intertwined in with the mainstream media party and kind of get a firsthand feel for for at least me personally that was my first time being really uh, submersed into that situation what that was like in to be with the insiders the quote-unquote mainstream media and um, it's really just a big a small echo chamber of like-minded views and ideologies and uh, you can really tell that they're all working for these supposed to be independent outlets, but they're all doing the exact same work. And it was so repetitive and you could see that everyone was, you know, doing doing their work, but it was all the same. And uh, and so it just really drives home further the need to have independent media that's critical of all parties, regardless of their political stripe. And, um, you know, hold hold feet to the fire, ask some real relevant to the real Canadian public questions, not these fluffy, how do you feel and did, did, were you attacked in the debates kind of thing, fluff questions that, I mean, I don't personally care about. I don't, that's not what I think uh, the media is there to do, but obviously it, it gets them, so they think, the, the hits and the views that they need so desperately need yeah the utter weakness of the questions the ultra lameness of the questions from so many members of mainstream media tamara was mm -hmm. just jaw-dropping but let's um you know unpack the debate and uh it's especially prudent i ask you because you were there live and in person to see it i was outside um uh, speaking to various uh protesters and demonstrators i did hear clips of it on the radio I have a two-pronged question for you, uh, Tamara. Um, a, did anyone, in your opinion, actually win the debate? And B, did any leader say anything so profound that it might have swayed somebody to actually change their, uh, their vote for the upcoming June 2nd election? I don't think so. I don't think there was a clear winner or... Uh, maybe there was a loser, but um, I don't think there was a clear winner in terms of, you know, the strength of the argument or the strength of the platform or policy. I was really, my jaw dropped when Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP, announced that they were going to do a $20 minimum wage. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's really, uh, 
uh, aiming the bar high there. And, and where does that money come from? All I heard throughout the whole debate was just more money, pouring more money, more funding, more funding, more funding. And nowhere really apart from, I guess, mostly Doug Ford, you know, building infrastructure and and building and, and bettering areas, namely the construction sector. I didn't hear a lot of initiatives there um, in terms of how we were going to maintain this you know, fiscal responsibility where we're going to pour all these funds and money into all these these things. But where does the money come from? You know, and and so speaking that's pretty of building typical, infrastructure, I think. Uh, Tamara, I think I heard a soundbite of Doug Ford saying uh, to the other candidates, um, had they been in power, you wouldn't have built nothing, which means yes. either he used a double negative or he's implying you will you would have built something because <laughs> that's grammatically incorrect. Right. But I guess I um, uh, the, if the rules of spelling don't apply, I guess neither do the rules of grammar. One thing I found annoying, and I bet you many viewers tuning in change the channel because it is so annoying uh, Tamara, but when I was listening on the radio, the amount of overtalking was really appalling. And because you can't hear what anyone's saying, it's it's bad mm -hmm. TV and bad radio for that matter. And I understand that at TV Ontario, uh, not the moderator Steve Pakin, but somebody in the studio had a silencer button. And I don't think. Well, you tell me. Was it ever used? Because with all the overtalking, I am telling you, not only was that terrible debate etiquette, but mm -hmm. you were losing audience because people go, the hell with this. I can't even hear what they're saying. Yeah, at one point, all four of them were just trying to talk over one another. And I think at that point is when the mics were temporarily cut. I think that might have happened twice. I did notice that one other time when uh, Doug Ford went to respond, to someone, I don't remember at what point it was, but his mic was off. And so you missed the first, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds of what he was saying. But you know, David, it was really hard to get a feel for what was happening in the debate itself because we were in a separate room. So I don't think people realized that, that the media party was actually set up in a separate room from where the debates were happening. And so we were watching it from a screen, just like everybody else at home. Uh, so that was really strange to be, you know, covering a debate from another room. Uh, that was a first for me as well. You know, some of the debates that I've been to recently in terms of the conservative leadership debates. Um, and it was it was a way that you didn't feel as engaged with the debate. And I mean, in and of itself, it was a giant snooze fest, in my opinion, apart from the points that they're talking over one another. Um, so, yeah, I did notice t at least once, twice that the mics were turned off, but it definitely could have been better moderated. And the questions, you know, again, they're yeah, they're topics that that matter in, in the political landscape, but they could have been a lot tougher. And they could have pressed the candidates a lot more, which, again, is where I think that the media come in after the fact, right? The media scrum, in my opinion, should be there for the the leaders to face further scrutiny, to have harder questions hit, and, of course, to cover some of the areas that the debate in of itself might have missed. So we didn't hear anything about COVID response or, or the injections or the reactions that are happening or anything about gun control. Um, and so, you know, the, the mainstream seems to lose a lot of opportunity 
there to really hone in on more politically relevant topics, wasting their questions on feeling fluff. But, you know, Tamara, not to make this about Rebel News, I think last night was a significant victory for us in that we did get in to the debate. We did get to ask questions and we did Mm -hmm. so without getting a federal court order like we had to in 2019 (laughs) and 2021 for the federal debates. So um, that is uh, well, I'm going to give myself a. Barry Horowitz uh, pat on the back uh, right there. There you go. You did the same. (laughs) And speaking of uh, question period or the Q&A, why don't we run a few videos? I understand you got to uh, query uh, the the Green Party leader and Lincoln got some questions out to liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Uh, Let's run some of those and see what went down. Shriner, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, There is a Canadian entrepreneur who has a patent pending on a inexpensive and effective retrofit to utilize um, on existing vehicles using ammonia fuel. As an environmental party, why haven't you investigated this cheap and safe alternative fuel? Yeah, I think I know the entrepreneur you're talking about. I've met with him on more than one occasion. And certainly we've talked about uh, the importance and viability of not only ammonia, but also green hydrogen are two effective technologies that Ontario should be a global leader in, especially as we look at the EU uh, and just this horrific, senseless invasion, uh, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and how it's disrupted international energy markets and Ontario is well positioned uh, to supply the European Union both with green hydrogen and ammonia and those are technologies that we should be developing because they're huge job and prosperity opportunities for the province. And and of course Tamara uh, you were referring to um, our story from a few months ago Roger Gordon uh, Mm -hmm. in Ontario with his modified Ford F-350 a pickup truck that uh, runs on uh, ammonia as well as uh, traditional fuel, gasoline. Um, and that got a, a huge response uh, from mm-hmm. our viewers, I understand. Um, but that's interesting that unlike Justin Trudeau, who loves virtue signaling about um, alternative fuels, but has never uh, returned Roger Gordon's calls since uh, he got into office, at least... Um, uh, Mike Schreiner uh, went out and uh, visited him. What, what do you make of that? Well, I was really shocked that he immediately deflected back to hydrogen because if I remember the por- report correctly, and I mean, you were the journalist that reported on it, so correct me if I'm wrong here, if you have additional details to add, but uh, Roger, the gentleman who did this retrofit, he specified that the ammonia is much more cost-effective and a lot safer than hydrogen. And so I found it interesting that Schreiner lumped these two uh, fuel alternatives together when it it appeared from the report who we, we heard from Roger directly that ammonia is actually the superior alternative to be using. And he really didn't answer my question at all. He just deflected about hydrogen and how we have a an opportunity to be, you know, supply the European Union with some alternatives here. But I don't hear anything. I don't hear any word from anyone in the mainstream or uh, anyone in the government talking about ammonia. I would be really interested to hear Roger's perspective on that response from Schreiner and if they have, you know, what their conversations have actually looked like.
Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and as always, it's always about the distribution of these alternative fuels, Tamara, i.e., when can you and I go to a Shell or a Petro Canada station or an ESSO station and say, fill it up with hydrogen, fill it up with ammonia? Uh, that is a mm. huge piece of the puzzle. But, you know, billions are being invested um, by uh, some of the automakers like Honda and Toyota and Hyundai in looking at hydrogen. Roger Gordon, he says hydrogen is still too unsafe a fuel source. I'm not a fuel expert, so I'm not going to weigh in with my opinion. But um, I do know in terms of ammonia, uh, I think Roger said it was about $1,200 to convert his truck, which isn't a lot of money, and you're going to make it up in fuel savings to accept ammonia. And when you do the mathematics, um, ammonia fuel works out to $0.25 cents a litre. Now, Tamara, the only way you're going to get $0.25 cent a litre gasoline is to buy a DeLorean DMC-12 with the flux capacitor option and go back uh, to, oh, I don't know, 1978. You know? And th then you can get gas at uh, uh, $0.25 cents a litre. So I think the upside, given that when I drove into work today in the GTA, gas was around $2.08 a litre. Wow, wow, a quarter is the deal of the century. Yeah, on the way home last night, I filled up. Uh, I was driving, uh, we have a commuter car, and so it's diesel. And that was $1.25, and I thought that was rough, but that's on the outskirts of the city and diesel. Um, so, yeah, $2, above $2. This is just insanity. And, I mean, I'm okay with using fuel and oil, but hey, if there's an alternative that's cheaper and going to bring that cost down, especially for us who, you know, we travel to, to cover stories and be on the ground and deliver the reports as they happen in real time. Hey, I'm all for having a cheap and safe alternative. Um, but of course, it's also not lining the pockets of the bureaucracy. And mm. so that I assume is why we're also not investigating or looking into this, even despite having this virtuous Green Party member who continually spoke of the climate emergency and the next pandemic is going to be the climate crisis and just using this very alarmist language that you know it's just so extreme and and really at the end of the day too it's important to note here that the green party is a fringe party the we have these other parties polling higher than the green party and yet they're not being welcomed into any of these mainstream debates and i'm sure you heard a lot of that yesterday actually david maybe before we we go further into the questions asked i would love to hear what your your view on how the protest outside of TVO Canada or Ontario went yesterday afternoon with, I guess it was namely the New Blue Party. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, there, there were two demonstrators. I was about to call them dueling demonstrators, but really they're on the same page because they were espousing ABD, anybody but Doug. Uh, there are the nurses in purple. At first I thought, it, the PPC was in town, uh, but they were um, complaining that their wages only went up 1% um, during the pandemic. And uh, then, of course, Jim Karahalios, um, <clears throat> basically, the rules for getting into the debate, and I think Jim's got a really good case, is that you had to have candidates running in every riding in Ontario, that is true of the new blue party. 
you have to have an existing uh, MPP that is true of the new blue party, namely Belinda Karahelios. Uh, she is running for re-election. And then, uh, Tamara, the organizers of the debate, um, the people that um, uh, Jim Karahelios calls the uh, mainstream media consortium, uh, they basically said to him, uh, hey, sucker, read the fine print. That uh, sitting MPP, that's got to be somebody that ran under the current banner. But here's the thing, uh, Tamara, and I don't even know why that's a big deal, why that should be um, a point to kick Jim out of the debate. But even if it is, well, wait a second. The other caveat, as I just said, was you have candidates in every Ontario riding. And I believe the Liberals are three short of that. So by the consortium's own rules and fine print, nitty gritty regulations, Stephen Del Duca should have been disqualified. He failed to meet the benchmark. Why is Del Duca in and Jim Carahelios is on a sidewalk? It's a disgrace. And what we should do, I think right now, uh, before we go to some of your other uh, questions and uh, Lincoln's questions, why don't we see Jim Carahelios try to unpack that? And then I'd welcome your comments on what he had to say, Tamara. We got a great party platform, the new blueprint. We got 124 candidates. We were expecting that the media was going to do the best to ignore us. And our candidates are out there canvassing, putting up signs every day and spreading the message. Thank you very much. And every step we take, we gain momentum. There's no elevator. There's no shortcut. But the numbers are going up. And they've consistently gone up for a year and a half for us. And we're only a, a week and a half into this election campaign. And we're doing very, very well. And Belinda's doing very well in her own riding at Cambridge going to re-election. We've got two and a half weeks left. And every day more signs go up. More Ontarians pick up and say, what's going on? There's a new option here. Finally, Doug doesn't want to be held accountable. He made a series of promises to the North and to all of Ontario on what he was going to do as premier. And, and he reversed course and betrayed everybody, his entire 2.3 million voters, and not just on COVID policy. Largest deficits ever, no tax relief, um, hydro rates have gone up, wind turbines, the largest wind turbine project in eastern Ontario, and of course, voting in favor of critical race theory. He is the exact opposite of what he said he was going to do. And of course, he wouldn't want to take questions and not have a debate against me to hold him accountable. And I think, yep. um, Tamara, Jim is correct. Jim is the kind of guy who's going to ask insensitive, impolite, prickly questions. He's the ultimate insider when it comes to Queen's Park chatter, the stuff that the parties, um, as part of, I guess, a gentleman's or gentlewoman's agreement, don't get into uh, live on the stage. And they're afraid of that. What do you take? What's your take, uh, Tamara? Well, that is exactly what the debates are missing. They're missing someone who's going to ruffle the feathers, who's going to ask the real tough, pertinent questions of the leaders, point out their hypocrisy, point out the fallacies, and get some real accountability going. Mm. That's the whole point. It's not to just stand up there and pat each other on the back and, oh, I agree, just a little bit less okay. or a little bit more. 
And it's really just a yawn fest. I can't, I mean, if I wasn't getting paid to sit there for an hour and a half and listen to that absolute garbage where they just talked about making it rain fiat, um, I think I probably would have opted to just go home and go to bed. And like you said, people were tuning out because then they just talk over each other and no one's getting anything tangible accomplished. So I'm left thinking, why aren't we bringing these other voices to the table? We're all about diversity and inclusivity and and freedom of thought and freedom of exchanges. Well, hey, if they're such a fringe party and they don't matter at the table, well, then debate them and, and shut them down and then let the people decide for themselves who they think represents their best interests the most. I mean, I don't know why we have to engage in such in such strong censorship of anyone at this point. Let the public decide. The people are going to speak for themselves. They're going to think critically. They don't need the media to think for them. They just need clear presentation of facts, and then they can make up their own choices. I think that the media really thinks that people are stupid. They think that they're not able to critically think and formulate their own thoughts. And so they're up there with these fluffy questions that maybe some people eat up, but I'm over there going, when is this this over? When can I ask some questions and get hopefully some real answers? But as we see, the politispeak uh, runs pretty rampant as well, probably because these leaders are not used to being pushed and pressed for answers. You know, I, I agree with you, Tamara. And I also think that with the political parties, especially the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, which is the sitting government, there was this undercurrent of arrogance, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, and it, it starts from throwing MPPs out of caucus. I think they're up to seven or eight. I've kind of lost count for having the temerity to disagree with anything that this supermajority government does uh, to the fact that um, Doug Ford um, use that term a bunch of yahoos to mm -hmm. describe those anti-lockdown protesters going back more than two years ago appearing on the lawns of Queen's Park. You know, Tamara, a lot of people said that was Doug Ford's Hillary Clinton basket full of deplorables moment. And I said, no, absolutely not. Hillary Clinton was directing her ire at Donald Trump supporters. Right. Doug Ford was directing his shot at people, the vast majority of whom, because I, I would ask them this. I would say, if you don't mind me asking, who did you vote for in 2018? And the Yahoos almost universally said the PC party. So he was turning his guns inward uh, by calling his own base Yahoos. And, you know, I think... I mean, I'm going to personalize this. The riding I live in is Aurora, Oak Ridges, Richmond Hill. When I walk around Tamara, by far the most signs I see are liberal. Uh, by the way, the uh, this is held by a PC MPP, Michael Parsa, this riding. But I also see a smattering of New Blue Party of Ontario signs and Ontario Party signs. And I got to think if I'm Mr. Parsa, the incumbent uh, PC MPP, I am a little unnerved by this because if someone's voting liberal, I never had that person to begin with. But someone voting Ontario, somebody voting new blue, that means four years ago they were almost 100 uh, percent online in terms of voting PC. And so it's a double whammy. Not only have I lost their vote, but they're going to another uh, right leaning party. What is the um, 
I guess, the, the landscape in the Coburg area when you are out and about, Tamara? Yeah, I'm seeing a similar pattern. So I definitely see primarily uh, PC. So my local candidate here in Northumberland, Peterborough South, is conveniently enough, the shadow minister of the environment, David Pacini. So I do see a lot of his signs out and about, but I'm surprised at how more I'm seeing the other two parties, the new blue and the Ontario party. And I agree with you. I think that the right it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword because we're so engaged in being able to debate and have our own opinions and having these discussions that it leads to when you see that that's not being upheld by the main party so the the conservatives obviously as you mentioned doug ford kicks uh, mpps and who disagree with him out of caucus so then of course they're going to they're going to splinter and split off and they will take their views which they strongly hold and they have been representing their constituents to uphold they're going to splinter and fraction off and develop their own parties based on their convictions and their principled conservative values and views uh, so it's not surprising and it makes you wonder where the main party's leader, where Doug Ford's head is at when he takes this approach. Instead of listening to everyone's views and engaging in robust debate and scrutiny and conversation, because that is the foundation of the democratic process, he just wants to silence and disregard anyone whose view may be contrary to, I guess, the Ontario Science Table, who are a bunch of unelected, self-proclaimed experts. And that's who he primarily chose to listen to throughout the COVID pandemic when he was yeah, condemning his own base for protesting the very restrictions that he was putting in place based on advice at the time of some backdoor secret expert panel. Because at that time, in the spring of 2020, he was claiming in the news and in the media to be listening to the experts, but wouldn't name them, citing privacy concerns. I remember that very clearly. And then, I don't know, a month later, out rears its head the Ontario Science Table, which is mostly just a bunch of bureaucrats from, not bureaucrats, but uh, career students and yeah. teachers, professors from the Dalai Lana School of Public Health, the, the, the University of Toronto. And we know that they're embedded in big pharma and the World Health Organization and all these global conglomerates and the big pharma conglomerates. And um, is that really trusting the science or is that just trusting those who are going to profit off of this very response? No. Uh, well said, Tamara. And, you know, I, I'm, the polls indicate that the Doug Ford PCs are in the lead. Uh, the margin varies from pollster to pollster. I got to tell you something, Tamara. I'm getting this weird vibe regarding this election. And I'm going back to 1990 in this province when absolutely nobody predicted that the Bob Ray NDPs uh, were going to form the government. And boy, they did. And uh, to this day, I've only found one person who admits voting for the Bob Ray NDP government. Um, I'm not saying I would put money on such a regime change, but there's something in the air. And, and especially when I drive to the um, south of Bluer uh, ridings in the city of Toronto, uh, the SOB ridings for short. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I see a avalanche of liberal red and NDP orange. I see virtually no blue PC signs. I'm just thinking 
Could it be that going back to 1990, Tamara, we're going to be in for a big surprise on June 2nd? Yeah, I mean, I was a toddler in 1990, but I definitely have some some context there with the Ray Days, right? We all know that the Ray Days were were a hard time for Canadians. There was no fiscal responsibility. And uh, I think that people just need to look to history to find out what some of these parties actually do. And it sounds all gravy when you're throwing money at all of these uh, supports and having funding and funding and funding. But people, I I don't know why they don't question or wonder where does the money come from and what kind of deficit are we going to be in and how does the balance, the the budget balance itself. Um, And so I think that the conservatives typically get a bad rap, obviously, because they tend to be more fiscally responsible and that, sadly comes alongside with cuts because we see the changeover of governments and so one will just hike up everything and increase the deficit and the other one will come in and try to rein that back in and gain control and it's just this never-ending cycle of deficit and cuts and deficit and cuts and that's why i think it's so important to have maybe some of these these lesser known parties bring them into the table and into the discussion um, and start to get some policy that makes sense long term that Ontarians and I mean, of course, Canadians as a whole can start to have more of a say in. And then, you know, as soon as they're elected, the other thing is, is that they just disregard their constituents and they don't listen anymore. I- so we need some a better way to have accountability in that sense that you elect someone to do something and do a job. And when they don't follow through and they don't perform in that job. And then then we need to have a way to have a check and balance in place to stop that from always that cycle always happening. Oh, I totally agree, Tamara. I just think that fiscal responsibility, even for conservatives these days, is a mere afterthought. Yes. Um, You know, it's uh, tax and spend and print money. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm basing my quasi prediction of what might happen on June 2nd based on members of Ford Nation, ex-members of Ford Nation, I should say, who I meet every day almost, who Mm -hmm. have realized over the last four years that contrary to popular belief, Doug Ford is not the late great Rob Ford, that this whole image of, you know, folks, I'm just a common man driving a common (laughs) van. Uh, Actually, it's a Lincoln luxury navigator SUV. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I guess he's got to get around on some set of wheels. Um, as I said earlier, demonizing his base as being a bunch of yahoos for just saying we want to be open, we want to cut hair, we want to uh, serve people at our restaurant. Uh, him turning the thumb down to that unless you were part of a mega chain like Costco or Walmart or the Ford family business, Deco Labels. I understand business yes. has never been better and they never closed a single day. People have seen through that, I think. At least these are the people I'm meeting almost on a daily basis, Tamara. And I think they would rather stay home. They would spoil their ballot, decline their ballot, go New Blue, Ontario, you name it, than support this regime. I think it's going to hurt them at the Mm -hmm. ballot box we're going to see on June 2nd for sure. Why don't we get to your second question uh, with the Green Party uh, leader and um, see how he uh, managed his answer. Mm-hmm. You spoke a lot about farmers and preserving farmland, uh, and yet farmers hate the carbon tax. <laughs> How do you reconcile that? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, 
rebating uh, the our, our carbon fee and dividend rebates uh, and recycles those revenues back to individuals. So most individuals, including farmers, actually will end up with more money in their pocket. And also we've created a fund that will help farmers uh, reduce their, their uh, fossil fuel use, helping them save money in a variety of ways. Here's the bottom line is, we are losing 175 acres of farmland in Ontario each and every day, five family farms a week. It is completely unsustainable to continue to lose the land that feeds us. I think the disruption we're seeing in international food supply chains right now, the disruptions we saw in all supply chains, but also food supply chains during the pandemic, highlights the fact that we have to prioritize our own food security. And that means protecting the land that feeds us. And we know that we can address the housing of that we that we can address the housing affordability crisis without paving over that land that feeds us. Well, Tamara, I, I, on the plus side, I can say that Mike isn't as extreme as the leader of there's, believe it or not, a vegan party of Ontario. And not only do they want to ban fossil fuels, they want to shut down Ontario's nuclear plants. I'm just wondering, how do they think the greenhouses in the province are going to get the power, you know, to, you know, grow those cucumbers and tomatoes they so favor. Um, it, it's just amazing. But anyways, what do you make of uh, the answer you received? Well, <laughs> uh, first and foremost, he laughed at farmers and, and maybe hate wasn't the right word that I should have used. Um, but I wasn't even sure if I was going to get a follow-up question. So I was really glad that I was able to sneak that in there. But farmers, they do. They hate the carbon tax because farming is becoming so unsustainable for them financially. Yep. They can't afford gas for their vehicles. I mean, tractors and combine harvesters, these these things don't run on little engines that uh, take, you know, $50 of gas to fill up. Now, they're probably spending in several hundreds of dollars a fill up on just one piece of equipment and they have to run multiple. Um, so, yeah, he, he mentions that it's unsustainable to lose the land that feeds us, but it's also unsustainable for farmers who are trying to sow and harvest and grow on the land that feeds us and so if we don't have that in place then the land doesn't matter anymore because there's no one left to farm it we're losing five family farms a week i'd love to see the actual stats on that if that's accurate here in ontario but i imagine that that's probably due to the rising cost of living and inflation and gas not because you know ford wants to come in and, and make a, a highway and, and then you to know, recycle um you're absolutely right, Tamara. And in your um, list of things adversely affecting farmers, don't forget the cost of fertilizer if you can get it, because mm -hmm. I understand in some right. regions there are shortages uh, pending. And of course, when you get the products to market, well, guess what? Diesel fuel, I think, is around $2.30 a litre. You know, I'll have to get Dan McTagg on one day, the show, to explain that, because traditionally diesel fuel is about 10 cents a liter cheaper than regular gas. And suddenly it's like 25 cents more expensive. I don't know what the market dynamics are there. I do know this, when you and I go shopping at the grocery store, 
uh, we're, we're getting sticker shock because mm-hmm. all these costs are passed on to the consumer. Exactly. And I think a lot of the supply chain issues that we're starting to see as well, which I'm no economist, but uh, could have called it beginning of 2020 by the middle of 2020, that this is the result of those lockdowns and those restrictions. It doesn't take long to disrupt and dismantle a supply chain. As soon as the demand's not there anymore, then you're going to start seeing the fallout. And sadly, it's just taken this long to start to finally see the fallout of those lockdowns and those restrictions and people their memories seem to be very short-lived they don't remember that this is a direct result of the government response to a seasonal respiratory virus we're seeing the supply chains now under intense pressure we can no longer get items that previously were readily available and we're just going to see more and more of it especially coupled with the inflation and the rise in gas prices And people don't realize that this is a direct result of that response. And let's not forget to mention, uh, Tamara, those on the left, the way they vilified and demonized the trucker convoy. I'm just going to use a Tucker Carlson quote. If you are alive, thank a trucker. And what he meant by that is when you go to the grocery store, how do you think uh, the produce and the fruit and everything else got there? When you go to a pharmacy, how do you think your lifeline medicines got there by truck. And yet these people were so vilified and demonized for their peaceful protests in Ottawa. Uh, That was an absolute disgrace. But we should move on to our colleague, uh, Lincoln. He had a question uh, regarding the housing plan for Canadians fighting inflation. Let's check that out. Jay with uh, Rebel News. You plan to address the housing crisis by building 100,000 new affordable units. So how does this help people trying to buy into the housing market with the record level inflation that we're seeing? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the Ontario Greens put forward a very comprehensive uh, housing affordability strategy last June that some have called a master class plan in delivering the solutions we need. It clamps down on rampant speculation in the housing market because we believe homes should be for people, uh, not speculators. And so putting first time home buyers on a level playing field, especially if you look at the number of um, corporations and speculative real estate uh, investment entities that they're having to compete against. Secondly, we're the first party that called for removing exclusionary zoning rules that prevent people from rapidly increasing housing supply and providing more choice through duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, making it easier for people to build laneway housing, tiny homes, secondary suites. We think that's the fastest pathway to building the 1.5 million homes that I know all parties have have endorsed, Um, but we actually have policy to back it up. And finally, the third critical component is uh, the federal and provincial governments got out of investing in housing in the mid-1990s, and the crisis has been getting worse ever since then. Obviously, now it's at a, at a breaking point, and a whole generation of people are wondering, one, will they be able to afford to buy a house, and two, even pay rent. And so our commitment to supporting nonprofit and co-ops and other community-based uh, affordable rental homes Uh, will help ensure that we provide housing along a continuum. And I want to be clear, the 60,000 permanent supportive housing spaces we've committed to with wraparound mental health uh, addictions and other supports, numerous studies, or not numerous, 
quality studies, I'll say, show that for every $10 invested in permanent supportive housing returns $21.72 back to government in reducing other costs, particularly health care costs, uh, criminal justice costs, uh, social service costs, et cetera. And it was one of the reasons I brought that issue up in the health section, because so many doctors now are recognizing the connection between pressure on our health care system and the lack of safe, uh, stable housing uh, supply for people. Well, Tamara, yeah. I certainly agree with them on one point, and that is the removal of red tape to get mm -hmm. alternative housing built. Laneway housing, for example, that is indeed a viable alternative. Uh, if people yeah. want to live in a small unit that borders on a laneway, well, why not? I mean, why mm -hmm. do we have these rigid, I guess, nimbyism laws in urban environments uh, that prevent this? So I think uh, there is... Um, you know, there's grist for the mill there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And I liked, you know, the secondary suites, building additions onto your own home. Um, I'm I'm a big proponent of uh, intergenerational homes. And I think that it's yeah. important to be able to take care of your elderly. And I think that that was another huge debate topic that they touched on was the crisis in long-term care and the absolute abysmal treatment of our elderly, our seniors who paid into this system all their lives and are now just hung out to dry or left to die alone, neglected in their uh, boxed rooms. But I, that's another topic in and of itself. I just want to highlight as well here on Shriner's comments. Did he say in there that he wants the federal and provincial governments to invest in back into housing? And what do you think about something like that, David? Well, you know what? Um, it can be a sinkhole. Um, and, you know, I think one of the issues is that when you have government funded housing, um, there is a delinquency by some people who live in those units. If you're going to go that route, I suggest you make a system in which there is at least um, a percentage of a mortgage payment where people put into their subsidized housing unit so that it's home ownership. Because studies have proven around the world, I, I, in, in Britain, for example, I think it's called council housing, when you have a rent-to-own program, um, suddenly, guess what? The trash gets picked up. Suddenly, people mm -hmm. are planting flowers uh, in their front yards. So if we're going to go down that route, that is the way to go, uh, i.e. in em embracing the idea of private property, even though, of course, private property has never been a constitutional right in this uh, uh, country to the government shame. But that would be my caveat if we're going to go down that route, uh, Tamara. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting, too. He kept also bringing up this prescription for housing. And that so that's why he, he referenced back to how he brought it up in the health discussion. The doctors are, are I guess, one uh, have a longing to be able to give people a prescription for housing because there is a housing crisis. I don't disagree there. I know how completely impossible it is to get into the market either to rent or especially for anyone who hopes to one day own a home. Um, but then maybe that can lead us into one of the next topics that we were hoping to get to in this hour-long live stream that we've gobbled up quickly with the debate recap is uh, that article by Blacklocks where they, uh, they, they question the immigration claims. 
um, where we don't have the resources available to be able to house more immigrants coming in to, and they did talk about this in the debates as well, to allegedly fill the gaps of employment in, in Ontario and also Canada as a whole. Um, they, they want to bring, they've raised the, the quota. So here the second, or sorry, the third paragraph, the cabinet's immigration levels plan raised quotas from just uh, shy of 40, uh, 4, 410,000 to a record of 431, almost 432,000 uh, for this year. And where it always makes me wonder especially when we're talking about this housing crisis, where are we going to put everyone? We can't get everyday Canadians, everyday Ontarians into stable, affordable housing. Where are we going to put more immigrants coming in? I mean, just in my backyard here, we had two Ukrainian families welcomed locally. A very generous family opened up their home to these two families, each family has a child and one family is also pregnant with a second child on the way, I think in the next month or two. And uh, so the, the families were eventually placed with, within another home. So one family went to another home and the other family stayed at the original home that first welcomed them. And the guy gave them one month and he said, hey, after a month, you have to find somewhere to live mm -hmm. because I'm moving my son or whatever the family dynamic changed and he needs the, the basement apartment now for a family member. And this poor family, I mean, they're, they're coming from Ukraine and they, they fled war allegedly. Um, and, and now they have nowhere to go. They're going to be on the streets here in Ontario promised, hey, you can come to Canada and have a safe haven. And now they're going to be homeless. Well, you know, uh, Tamara, it seems that uh, they might have made a strategic error in that they didn't cross into Canada illegally at Roxham Road, <laughs> where the RCMP turned from police officers to bellhops and carry your luggage. And uh, it looks like the vast majority of those people, 60% uh, of whom plus are not vaccinated, so they can come into the country, but <laughs> the likes of you and I can't get on a uh, an airplane. Um they seem to be well housed. So it's kind of like um, a philosophy of this federal government of uh, reward the takers, penalize the makers. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I'm being um, semi facetious here, but, you know, it's it is a problem. I'm not saying I have the solution. I do know that given our pathetic birth rate, and of course, I'm excluding you um, from this uh, conversation, uh, Tamara, you're doing more than your fair share with your growing family. But with our birth rate in Canada, we don't have enough for even replacing the population. So you don't want to get into a, a demographic nightmare where it's the pyramids upside down with young people at the bottom and older people at the top, which is a huge tax on our healthcare system, of course, because mm -hmm. we're living longer. I mean, it used to be that the reason the retirement age was 65 was they figured, well, you only got about three or four more years left. Well, now we have people who are like 75 climbing Mount Everest for goodness sake. So um, it has to be addressed. And the other issue too, is that as you know, when you look at where new immigrants are going, um, it tends to be the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, Montreal, Vancouver, and we have um, we're the second largest country in the world, and yet we are not 
populating it as we should. So maybe that is a, uh, a caveat to immigration that you can't settle in already overdeveloped, overpopulated areas. Um, those are my two cents, but- uh, Well, and not to mention as well that the fact that there are a lot of shortages here in Ontario is because anyone who wasn't vaccinated lost their job. Yes. They were put on unpaid leave, they were terminated. You know, all the atrocities that faced Ontario workers and other, I mean, provinces across Canada who implemented the same. Uh, let's maybe end that mandate and get those people back into work. I mean, my family was directly affected by that mandate that came down heavy handed. And even if you so much as did not wish to disclose your personal and private medical information, you were reprimanded and, and you lost your employment. So um, why are we you know, why do we have all these these gaps in the workplace? Let's yeah. fill them with the people who lost their jobs due to these silly, nonsensical mandates. Now, I know we're running out of time here and we do. Have oh, some and Tamara, if I can, because we should show this um, because it's sort of uh, what are, you were under the main tent in the debate, as was Lincoln Jay for uh, uh, the leader debate yesterday. Uh, but outside the main tent, we saw a little circus sideshow that's uh, Isabel, my camerawoman, and I on a side street near TV Ontario because your first question to Green Party leader uh, was about alternative fuel sources. But guess what? Uh, the NDP likes to play the green card too when it comes to this file. And yet we discovered that, oh, lo and behold, say it ain't so, Andrea Horwith is really down with fossil fuels, it turns out. Check this out, folks. <laughs> Here is the Andrea Horwath campaign bus. It's hard to miss. And if you can hear, I'm not sure if the mic's picking it up. The engine is still running. Now, this is one of these perfect days in Toronto. You neither need the heat nor the air conditioning running. It's about 17 degrees Celsius. So why is this bus idling? I mean, what's coming out of this tailpipe? I don't think it's dilithium crystals. <laughs> I think it's good old fossil fuel carbon emissions. So again, isn't Andrea Horwath and the NDP, aren't they all about going green and reducing our carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. And yet here is this massive coach that has been idling um, for at least 25 minutes since we got here. So I once again, as there. we <laughs> saw during the pandemic, uh, ad nausea, um, Tamara, do as I say, not as I do. And by the way, why yeah. in blue hell does she need a vehicle of that size? I think those coaches seat 53, if I'm not mistaken. You're telling me that bus is packed to the rafters? I, I'm sure it's Andrea, uh, her inner circle, maybe some media yeah. flax along for a free ride, but there's no way there's 53 people in there. No, actually, it was surprising. Andrea Horwath, Horwath had the second largest entourage accompany her <laughs> into the media scrum. I think she probably had about, oh, 12 to 17 people uh, with her when she came into the scrum. Surprisingly, Ford had just a massive entourage follow him in. He had security, supporters. Um, I can never remember his media spokeswoman's name, Lily's, Brian Lily's girlfriend. Oh. Uh, that's how I refer to her these days. But uh, Ivana Yelich, uh, Brian Lily's mistress. It. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, yes. I always so, wondered how Brian Lilly was always getting these scoops, but I guess it, it helps if you um, engage in uh, horizontal jogging with the premier spokeswoman. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was, it was interesting to see what leaders brought, what kind of entourage with them into the scrum. Um, and I also just want to point out too, that when we were in the scrum, so the media consortium, the ones who were helped or facilitated the event, they were granted the first six questions. Um, so I just want to let our viewers know quickly that each leader was allotted 15 minutes to engage in the scrum and then the media consortium. So the approved media were, were granted the first six questions and then each media person also had a follow-up question. So there was 12 questions to be asked in a 15 minute period, which left very little time for us to engage thereafter if the leader even chose to continue to engage and or go out in the hall which was suggested and so we were able to catch uh liberal leader del duca out in the hallway i don't think he knew who we were which organization we were with originally which is why he probably engaged with us but he did nonetheless stop to answer our questions horwath uh skirted completely she would not stop to answer any additional questions uh, Green, as you saw, I think that the media wasn't as interested in, in questioning him or pressing. So we did get some questions in the scrum lineup, the formal scrum lineup. And then Ford, of course, uh, skirted questions from us as well. So we'll have the full report on that. But it, it leads me into Sheila's quick uh, report that she did that the CBC is hiring trauma therapists for their <laughs> journalists. I mean, how absolutely privileged do you have to be to get 24-7 access to a therapist or critical incident and trauma support sessions for CBC journalists? Um, if you, we can pull up the, yeah, there's the article there. So you can see the point number two, if you scroll down a little bit, uh, the request for information identified suppliers, I guess they're looking to hire these, these supports. So if you look at number two there, globally available in field, in person, online, and by telephone, 24-7, 365 critical incident and trauma support pre-deployment sessions. And this is the media that as I saw with my own eyes last night, literally has the red carpet rolled out to them to scrum with leader perspectives at a debate. They somehow need to have this critical incident and trauma support to them. I mean, we have everyday Canadians sitting on lengthy wait lists to receive those very same supports, like months, if not a year. Wait time, if you're suicidal, we have the kids' help phone that is backlogged so far from the pandemic fallout that these kids can't even access any sort of supports to help their ailing and failing mental health because they've been so isolated due to government response and the media party that sat there and rejoiced it all and pressed for more and more. And now our tax dollars are going to go to trauma support for those very same people. How absolutely privileged do you have to be to sit up on a high horse and think that you deserve something like this? And Tamara, uh, I mean, it's a it, it's unbelievable, yet it isn't. But when we talk about trauma, CBC journalists are enduring. I imagine it's 
maybe slurs thrown their way by people who don't like the CBC. (laughs) Maybe it's nasty things said online. But, you know, I'm just doing an inventory of what I've endured in the last few years uh, in Kingston having a bottle (laughs) thrown off my head. Uh, at Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto, having a 120-pound bull mastiff sink its teeth into my thighs. Um, Last December, uh, Justin Trudeau's Royal Canadian Mounted Henchman um, literally beating me up, uh, throwing my head off a fence for standing on a public sidewalk, and uh, as it turned out, uh, infecting me with COVID. Um, So, And and that's just a short laundry list of what I've been through. Other rebels, unfortunately, have been through this too, like Sheila Gunn-Reed getting punched in the face by Dion Buse at a women's rally in Edmonton, no <laughs> doubt. So you have the audacity as a CBC taxpayer-sucking parasite to say, oh, my feelings got hurt. I was in Ottawa and somebody mm-hmm. you know, called me a mother you-know-what. You know, I need a psychiatrist. Give me a break. Try, try out, you know, some of the stuff that some of the garbage that we encounter out in the field. You know, if anyone needs a, a, a what are they called, a, a, a trauma therapist, it would be one of us. But we're built of sturdier stuff, I should say, uh, Tamara. Uh, so that that's that's my take. When I saw that article, I went, give me a break. I mean, whatever happened to sticks and stones, that old adage. Right. Well, and it's their journalists with just ego fragility on full display. I mean, grow a tougher skin here. Maybe that needs to be a prerequisite for the job moving forward. Or maybe you can just be on the ground and get out of your Zoom room and speak to Canadians and see how they're actually feeling and represent them in an accurate way honest way and then you won't have to be seeking therapy because someone called you a virus like um so i think that just before we're one minute over here we're just going to go through our super chats quickly thank you to everyone who has donated so far uh we have five dollars from fraser mcburney hi fraser i remember we covered your story um gosh i guess about a year and a half ago so i hope you're well um he writes last sunday's rally at hamilton's city hall it was a beautiful sunny 81 degree day as i stood alone educating the passing cars many beeps and conversations that's great fraser Talk about a um, one-man gang. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's some bravery for you. I don't think he suffers from ego fragility. Um, well, Tamara, if I might add, I hope Fraser in the days ahead is not going to get a email, uh, or rather, was it email? Or, yes, an email ticket or a mail ticket for Hamilton bylaw because what they do, Fraser, uh, based on my experience, is they don't even approach you to give you a ticket for some made-up nonsense they simply send you an AMPS ticket through the mail for $360, which I received. And the egregious thing about it, Tamara, and I only got it because I was practicing journalism, which is against uh, the rules apparently in Hamilton. With an mm-hmm. AMPS ticket, you cannot fight it. You, um, uh, you cannot have a day in court saying, this is ridiculous. I was on a public square asking people questions. How is this a bylaw infraction? You can only go to the bylaw department and ask for leniency and they say no. And shockingly, Tamara, because we were gonna do a court challenge of this and lo and behold, we researched this. And in 2016, it went before the Supreme Court of Canada and it was upheld. 
th this is mind boggling. The idea that you are ticketed, convicted, and there's no day in court for you goes completely against our justice system. And yet the Supremes are, hmm, it's fine. Yeah, so much for innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. Um, G Melinda G60, she's gives $5. Thank you. Texan here. At least our media stands together. Every American citizen knows that Joe Biden loves ice cream, chocolate and chocolate, chocolate chip lockstep. They are shallow and hollow paid for by Pfizer. Honk. <laughs> yes. Oh, Frazier McBurney. By the way, another one. if I may say, if, um, uh, thank you so much for that donation and the great state of Texas. Uh, it's Texas and Florida, if ever I had to move to the U.S., as far as I'm yeah. concerned. But I um, urge our viewers, Tamara, to Google the phrase brought to you by Pfizer. There's like a five minute plus clip uh, on the Internet and it is rapid fire, like eight to ten second uh, clips of every major media organization in the United States, and it is preceded with brought to you by Pfizer. It's really something to see. <laughs> yeah, when you start recognizing that more and more, you see just how deeply embedded Big Pharma is with all of our institutions. It's actually very unsettling. Um, Fraser McBurney gives another $5. Thank you, Fraser. Congratulations on your coverage on the debate. Just like any other politician, political debate, boring. No one on the stage is worthy of my vote. I'm yeah, hearing well, that often, you know, Tamara, I got to tell you. And that's why you uh, should get out and talk to your new blue representatives and Ontario party representatives and any other party who's not getting the coverage that they may deserve in uh, the lead up to the election. Uh, Adam Ottawa, $2. Thank you. The Ontario debate was lame-o. <laughs> Why did the media party waste valuable questions on Ford's use of a binder as an aid memoir? Fluff-o-rama. Completely agree. We were debating what the color of the binder might be. <laughs> like, what, what, what was that, Tamara? You know, by a certain point, your brain just goes blank because you're tired of listening <laughs> to the just absolutely useless and senseless questions. And it's just another giant eye roll. Um, so I don't even know how many times that was asked. But I'm over there saying, I, like, I'm looking at the clock. I'm going, OK, I know we have 15 minutes. I know that there's six people in front of me and each six gets two questions. So there's 12. And I'm looking going, I'm not going to get a chance to ask him my actual relevant question. And so I had to, like, go over to the side and kind of skirt around everybody and just interject. Uh, oh. He didn't answer my questions, but I was still able to pose it. And so we'll have the full report on that coming, I think, uh, later today or tomorrow once we compile all the clips together. But um, Ford looked absolutely shocked. I don't know if he was shocked that he, I just kind of jumped at him to uh, to get a quick question posed or if he was shocked at the nature of my question. But he looked like a deer in headlights immediately <laughs> when he saw someone come into his face and ask uh, a quick question because the media only cared about him having a binder. Unbelievable. Um, world's worst gamer. Oh, Sorry about that. World's worst gamer, $1. Thank you. Here's $1 to help the menzoid pay for that lottery ticket he lost on recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Thanks. World's worst gamer. Uh, thank you so much. Finally, one person taking my side. It's a long story. It's where I offered to buy um, Isabel, my camera woman, 
a brand new Mini Cooper if she gave me the correct numbers for Lotto Max. Not a single number came through. And by the way, the offer went from a Mini Cooper to a house. So um, that was on the insistence of Lady Menzoid. Uh, not a single number <laughs> came through. I thought at the very least she could refund the $5. Uh, nobody agrees with that position except you, world's worst gamer. And if we ever meet, I'll tell you my Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man joke. It is not suitable for broadcast. <laughs> That's a private conversation. All right. Alberta Dawn, $3. Thank you. Why is mass migration never discussed when the topic of the housing shortage is raised? Yeah, um, I know that we're seeing mass migration. Who knows if those people are holding their houses to hope, uh, you know, this is pure speculation, but I would hold on to the house for a little bit and hope that things take a turn for the better in Ontario and, and Canada. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. David, do you have anything to weigh in? It, you know what? I'm not saying I have all the solutions because, you know, as I said earlier, we need immigration because of our pathetic birth rate domestically. Uh, but in terms of housing, um, the one thing I do agree with the Green Party leader is the idea of uh, cutting some of the bureaucratic red tape, uh, getting rid of some of the nimbyism regulations so that um, if immigrants are coming to already dense urban areas we can build there uh, and think outside the box. I know that's a cliche saying, but laneway housing, you know, that is an outside the box uh, thought that was never up for a conversation in Toronto of yesterday decade. And there are areas that have pulled this off successfully. So I think there are some urban planners that might have some ideas as to how to uh, fix this problem. But um, it's a rock and a hard place in a certain way, isn't it, Tamara? Well, and this Alberta, Don, he, sorry, if I read it too fast, it was mass migration. So we know that people are fleeing and leaving Ontario and Canada in record numbers that they have previously. And so he was wondering why mass migration is never discussed when the topic of housing shortage is raised. Oh, I see. You know what? I'd be interested to see how what the numbers are. Uh, very frequently, I'll, I'll see in our comment section for our videos, uh, Tamara, uh, ex-Canadian now living in Costa Rica. That's a popular one. Costa's, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a big one. We got out of Dodge. So sorry to see how horrible it is there. But I don't know what the numbers are, um, especially with the two years of hell we went through uh, with the uh, pandemic in um, full throttle mode. It'd be interesting to find out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Maybe something to look into. Um, and then last one is another one from o Adam Ottawa. One dollar. Thank you. Don't you remember JT's Seamus O'Regan, who was the Minister of Veterans Affairs, who claimed he had PTSD so he could connect with vets? Wow. I personally don't. Uh, you know, I don't remember that. I'm going to look it up uh, so that uh, I'm not uh, as ignorant as I appear right now. But um <laughs> What a condescending thing to say. I mean, it's like if you were speaking to somebody who was disabled, um, would you plop yourself into a wheelchair and say, I can empathize with you now. Uh, what is your story? I mean, that seems ridiculous to me. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me, though, coming down from the liberal government. For sure. Anyway, we're 10 minutes over here now. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats and for listening to our uh, rants about how the debates went, the Ontario leaders' debates went last night. Um, 
hopeful that we will see your full report soon, David, when you're out there with the protesters out front. And definitely mine and Lincoln's report will be published uh, shortly as well. So stay tuned and follow along. As always, rebelnews.com. Support our merch like this cool Rebel Mom hoodie at therebelnewsstore.com. David, do you have anything to say for Sayonara? Well, you look resplendent in that beautiful pink Rebel Mum uh, <laughs> sweatshirt, Tamara. And thank you so much for filling in for the She-Devil. In the meantime, there will be a couple of other uh, Rebel News personalities at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. And until I see you again with uh, Sheila on Thursday, stay sane. <laughs> Massive lineups at airport security, passengers being held on the tarmac, misconnections, costly delays, outdated COVID testing, and many Canadians still can't even travel. Canada's airports are getting a reputation, and it's not a good one. Disaster. The reason, according to the minister, Canadians have forgotten how to travel, and they are oh, out of practice. Unbelievable. Is the minister going to take responsibility for his government's failure, or will he continue to blame Canadian travel? Sure. The Honourable Minister of Transport. Mr. Speaker, it's not a surprise that a Conservative Member of Parliament repackages and misinforms the Canadians about what I said. Having said that, it is really important today to acknowledge the good news. Mr. Speaker, more and more Canadians are travelling, and that's good news. Having said that, we're seeing that the surge for demand to travel is putting a lot of pressure on our airports, on our uh, security system. We are making sure that we increase resources. We're working with airports. We're working with airlines to address this issue. This is a priority, Mr. Speaker. Thank you.